0: Uh, if we can go back all the way to the beginning of the Bible, the Genesis 1, the first few verses, the Bible begins, as most of you know, with these words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But how did God create the heavens and the earth? If we skip down to verse 3 of Genesis 1, through the beginning of verse 4, and God said, let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good. In other words, God spoke his good creation into existence in the words of Psalm 148 God commanded and they were created. We take God's speaking for granted, I think, in Genesis one. I mean, it's just the way God did it, right? Have you ever considered the creation account, as if it were told differently, as if God might have done it some other way. Some of you know the Babylonian creation myth, Enuma Elish, in which the creation of the world is explained very differently. In essence, the ancient Babylonian account tells of this dysfunctional family of gods. I don't know of any panoply of gods in any tradition that's not dysfunctional, but this is one of the original dysfunctional uh, panoply of gods. And the god Marduk and the got, goddess Tiamat have this epic battle. And Marduk defeats Tiamat, and she uses the parts of her body to fashion the earth and the blood of her general, Kingu, to create humankind. Sounds charming. In the ancient Egyptian versions of the creation, the earth is formed from a primordial chaos over thousands of years by the god Atum. And there are actually dozens of these ancient accounts, Some tell of a universe simply emerging on its own out of eternal darkness, or others as, as the product of activity of the gods who give birth to the world or fashion it in a particular interesting way. But In the true account found in the Bible, God simply speaks all things into existence, ex nihilo, out of nothing, in a display of power that is really to us incomprehensible. Let there be light. It's a spoken command. But not only does God command his creation into existence with his voice, he also names his creation. For example, in Genesis 1 verse 5, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And God commit continues to command his creation into existence. Sometimes he names what he creates in the account in Genesis 1. And then we come to God's creation of human beings in his own image in Genesis 1, And here we find that God also blesses what he creates. It says that God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Have dominion over it, tame it bend it to your will. So we find in the opening pages of the Bible, a God who speaks, he commands, he names, he blesses. Is it any wonder then that God created human beings made in his image with this same remarkable gift of speech? When we open the second chapter of the Bible, we find Adam conversing with God, and we find in Genesis 2.18 that God speaks again, and this time God's words express both an observation and a plan. The Lord God said, is it not good, or it is not good that the man should be alone? That's observation. I will make him a helper fit for him. That's a plan. So God fashioned a woman from Adam, as you know, and he brought the woman to the man and gave her to him. And this presentation of the woman to the man becomes the first occasion for the first human words ever recorded. They come from the lips of Adam. Adam says in Genesis 2:23, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. I want you to notice that this is a a, a beautiful poetic expression. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Adam was created not only to use speech functionally, but to use it well. Also, notice that Adam uses his speech in a way that is similar to the way God speaks. He names this person, this human person that God brings to him. She shall be called Isha, because she was taken out of Ish. And implied in the naming of the woman is a command. She shall be called. And furthermore, we don't have time to read very far into the pages of Scripture to find that that humans can use their words to observe and to plan, just like God, and even to bless like God does. Noah blesses his sons in Genesis 9, and Melchizedek blesses Abram in Genesis 14, and so forth. I wish we had time to explore this idea this morning. It's really fascinating. But we can conclude that this gift of speech that we possess, this use of our tongues has been given to us by a loving and gracious God who made us in his image. It means that we have the capacity to use our words in a God-like way, to observe, to plan, to bless, to name, to command, and so many other ways. And to speak in a way that when God hears us speak, he would say, that's good." And if we use our words in a way that would cause God to say, that is good, we are confirming and establishing God's goodness in the earth and his glory. However, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, condemning themselves and their descendants, that's you and me this morning, to moral corruption, human speech also became morally corrupt. Before the fall, Adam's first recorded words were this beautiful poetic expression about his wife that celebrated God's goodness and advanced the purpose of God in the earth. But after the fall, Adam's second recorded words, also about his wife, were not poetic at all. Neither were they beautiful. In fact, they're the first words of blame in all of Scripture because Adam when confronted with his sin, instead of taking responsibility or even trying to defend his wife and be her protector, he said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And we can already see in this blame shifting, the corruption of the heart, and this is important, the corruption of the heart passing its corruption onto the tongue. And we continue to see this terrible manifestation of the fall in human speech as we read the rest of the biblical story. Do you want to know what the next recorded words are of human speech in Scripture? They come from Adam's firstborn son, Cain, after he killed his own brother. Genesis 4.9, the Lord said to Cain, Where is your able, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Do you see what Cain has done? In just a few words, the sins he has committed with his tongue. It only takes five Hebrew words, by the way, to say what Cain says in this passage. And in only five Hebrew words, Cain lies. He answers back to God, his creator, disrespectfully. He expresses angry sarcasm and he evades responsibility for his sins. And by the end of the chapter, we find in the line of Cain, a man who rejoices over the fact that he has taken someone else's life. Lamech says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. I want you to notice again that this is a piece of poetry. It's the first expression of Hebrew poetry in the Bible since Adam's celebration of Eve in Genesis 2. And it represents the capacity that fallen humans still have for beautiful speech. But this is twisted. And it shows us that while we still have the ability to say beautiful things, we also have the ability to say ugly things. So what does God do about this? God, throughout the scripture, regulates human speech through his word. He shows his creation how to speak rightly. For example, two of the Ten Commandments have to do with the tongue. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And the book of Proverbs warns about a lying tongue, and a perverse tongue, and a rash or foolish tongue, and a mischievous tongue, and a backbiting tongue, and a flattering tongue. And in contrast, Proverbs also urges God's people to have a wise tongue and and tongue, a tongue that speaks words that are sweet and fitting, a tongue that speaks righteous words. And, And God teaches us in essence how to use our tongue that takes us back to the garden before the corruption of our hearts were manifested through the tongue and know how to speak in a way where God would say, it is good, in fact. Proverbs 15.4 literally says, a gentle tongue is a tree of life. I love that verse. It harkens back to the beauty and glory in the garden before the fall. Now, with all of that in mind, and, and this is in James's mind too, he's a student of the Old Testament scripture. In fact, he doesn't even know there's a New Testament yet. He's, he's, he's likely writing the very first New Testament book when he sends this letter out. If we can go all the way then to James chapter 3, James, the brother of Jesus, the, the head elder of the church of Jerusalem, writing to his scattered flock to help them learn how they should live up to their newfound faith in the Messiah, Jesus, seizes on this odious condition of the tongue. Because it's a perfect example of the kind of sin that his congregation must deal with if they are going to live out what they say they believe. And the same with us today. Last week, we looked closely at only the first two verses of James's teaching on the tongue. Guess what? We're not going to finish this passage this morning either. I thought we were. It was a surprise to me, but uh, we're not. We're going we're gonna to go through half the outline here this morning. But, but James begins by saying, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach, and he includes himself here, notice, will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. If you were here last week, you remember that James is playing off of the cultural Jewish desire to become a rabbi, you know, the, the respected teacher in, in the community. James isn't trying to discourage. The position of teacher here. He's simply warning would-be teachers that the position comes with a special occupational hazard. If you teach others what to believe and how to live, yet you yourself do not practice what you teach, you will be labeled the biggest hypocrite. Many professing believers fall into sin and have to be restored through confession and repentance. And that's right, and that's biblical, and God gives us that path back. But as a teacher, it is your responsibility to be the example of what you teach by God's grace. And if you fall, people are going to be far more critical and your name will be whispered and shared and talked about and maybe even blogged about and talked about in families and other churches, and even at times in the unsaved community at large. Did you hear what happened with that pastor at that church? Yet the situation for teachers is even more dangerous than that because James goes on to say that there's this little instrument inside their mouths that we all have that is very, very difficult to control. In fact, James says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says... He's a perfect man. You get this right, everything else is cake. If anyone does not stumble on what he says, he is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. If you can bridle your tongue, James says, you can bridle any other part of your body. And that observation should give teachers pause because not only do teachers constantly leave themselves open to the charge of hypocrisy if they do not practice what they preach, but they also spend their careers and their ministries doing the very thing that James says can easily get them into a lot of trouble morally. Teachers talk. They use their tongues a lot. So by the sheer volume of their words, given the sinful nature of the tongue, they are far more prone than non-teachers, non-talkers for a living, for instance, to fall into sin. But all of this raises a serious question that we're going to deal with this morning, beginning this morning. What makes the sins of the tongue so particularly difficult to deal with? Why is the tongue such an issue? So difficult, in fact, that if if your calling is to use your tongue to instruct others, James says, your ministry comes with kind of a warning label. Beware of of this. And as we push forward in the text, we see here that James offers three essential reasons that we all must bridle our tongues diligently. Not not only teachers, that's just his jumping off point, but all of us need to bridle our tongues diligently if we are going to live up to our faith, which is James' main point in the letter. Reason number one is contained in verses three through five, and that is this. The tongue is deceptively powerful. That's why we have to be diligent about our bridling it. It is deceptively power. It's little in size, James says, But this articulator in our mouth that allows us to form words packs a very mighty punch. And that's his point in the next section. In fact, if you look look at the beginning of verse 5, this is where he makes the point. Everything else in, in there is illustration of this one point where he says, So also the tongue is a small member of the body, yet it boasts great things. That's what James wants us to take away from this section. We wouldn't know by looking at our tongue that such a tiny part of our body could do such powerful things. But James has to convince us to bridle our tongues first by calling attention to the fact that our words are deceptively strong. They can really make a big impact. And James explains this through three uh simple to understand illustrations. And these are very common illustrations in the ancient world. In fact, if you read the ancient writings outside the Bible, you can find philosophers and teachers using these in, in multiple different ways. But James uses them here. Horses, ships, and fire. So first of all, he uses the illustration of the horse. Look at verse three. If we put bits in the mouths of horses, and you know what a bit is? Attached to the reins. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. A big old horse with strength to carry passengers and heavy loads and charge into battle. Horses can seriously injure or kill people, especially if they cannot be controlled. But how we have learned to domesticate horses is by placing a tiny bit in their mouths attached to reins that allows us to stop them and turn them, and thereby control them. And this is not the first time James has brought this up in the letter. He's hinted at it already. I think it's his main idea about the tongue. Because if you go back to James 1, verse 26, he brings it up while making his main point about living up to your faith in this chapter. He says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. There's, there's no evidence of salvation. If, if you're not willing to bridle morally this instrument we have in our mouth, and the word bridle that you see here is simply the verb form of the word bit. A bit in the Greek language is a kalinos. But to bridle something is a kalinagogeo, which means to guide with a bit, Literally. So James suggests that we must guide and control our tongues in the right way, in the way of righteousness, if we're going to follow Christ, if we're going to live up to our faith. And then you already saw in James 3 in verse 2, right before this passage we're looking at, that James again uses the word bridle when he says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man and able also to bridle his whole body. So James has this idea in mind of bridling the tongue and it sets him up to compare the strong and potentially dangerous situation of controlling a large animal such as a horse with controlling the strong and potentially dangerous life that we are living. What control we have over our tongues controls and shapes and informs the kind of person we are, the kind of life we are living out. But then James moves on to a different illustration in verse 4. He says, look at the ships. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, comparatively. He's not talking about in particular kind of ship here. He's just saying all ships have a smaller rudder that's smaller than the boat itself. They're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. He's making the same point basically that he made in the formal illustration. Large ship, strong winds that would carry the ship away except for the comparatively small rudder that aptly placed allows the, the captain to steer the vessel. But I want you to notice what James adds here. He says, wherever the will of the pilot directs. Now, human will or human desire here enters the equation. Your tongue can guide you into doing the will of God or it can guide you into sin. Which direction your tongue takes you is a matter of desire. Desire. It's really a matter of affections, which directly impacts the will. And the question for the believer is, whose will is guiding your tongue? Is it your will or is it God's will? Who is ultimately steering your course? Now, up to this point, James is making what appears to be a natural observation. The tongue is deceptively powerful. It's a small member of the body, but it can do very big things you think about it, a little word of encouragement, a little word of praise, a little word of advice, a word of warning, a word of hope. These kinds of words spoken to people in the right moment in an appropriate conversation can have a huge impact for good. And maybe you can think of stories in your life when you've been impacted by somebody's encouraging words. You you help set the rudder straight for somebody by an encouraging word. But James' overarching goal here is actually to warn us about the tongue. So his last illustration takes a turn at the end of verse five. Notice he says, how great a forest is set ablaze uh, ablaze by such a small fire. Here's what James is saying in essence. He's saying, you know, we can see that like bits and rudders, the tongue, even though it's little, has the power to control something much bigger than itself, namely the moral course of your life. That's true. And it's also true, he says, that it only takes a tiny fire to set ablaze an entire forest. James shifts here to an illustration that involves destruction. Yes, the tongue have deceptively great power. It's a surprising force to be reckoned with, but that's what makes it all the more dangerous. Like a fire out of control, our tongues have the potential to make us great sinners who stand out of fellowship with God and also hurt a lot of people. And I don't know if we appreciate this reality like we should because we often excuse our words as if they don't mean anything. Oh, I wasn't being serious when I said that. Oh, pardon my French. Or that's just the way I am. Or can't they take a joke? Or, you know, they took that terribly the wrong way. James says, no, it's on us. Our words cause great trouble." Our words can hurt people. They can cause division. They can cause conflict, confusion, outrage, gossip, misinformation. And James says, we need to bridle our tongue diligently because our tongue is a deceptively powerful instrument that has the potential even to do great great good, yet great harm. But we should remember that if James is warning us the tongue can do great harm. He's also saying the tongue is powerful enough to do great good. So again, we need to ask ourselves the question, who has control of our tongue? Who's guiding the horse? Who is steering the ship? Is it your own fallen desires so that you sin against God and against other people with your tongue causing great harm and great destruction to the testimony of Christ? Christ. Or is your tongue controlled by the Holy Spirit leading you to say Christ-like things with your tongue so that you can be a great blessing to God and to others? James is warning us that if we do not allow the Lord to take control and by his grace uh, and, and through his strength diligently bridle our tongue, then our tongue will cause great damage. Now, there's another reason James says we need to diligently bridle our tongues, and this is going to help inform what we just covered here in the first three verses, Not only is the tongue deceitfully powerful, but the tongue is also inherently evil. And he's going to explain how this works. Our tongue is inherently evil. Our our fallen tongue is inherently evil. And I want you to notice how James describes our tongue, your tongue and my tongue this morning. He picks up with the fire image and he keeps going with it. How great a fire. The forest is set ablaze by a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, he says. A world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell, by Gehenna. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. It harkens back to the original creation, God's blessing on man to rule over the earth. Man has done this, but there's something he's not been able to tame. No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. That is a very unflattering picture of our tongue. And, and, and really, in essence, we, we, we hear this and we're like, well, I mean, I'm not that bad, am I? James wants us to know there's great potential for sin in our tongue. This Left unchecked, this is a perfect description of this little instrument we have in our mouths. Notice he says the tongue is a fire. He doesn't say it's like a fire. He uses metaphor here that, 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 where, where he leaves simile and, it leaves direct, and and enters direct metaphor. Your tongue is a fire. The tongue is a restless evil, he says. It's not like a restless evil. It is a restless evil. It's full of deadly poison. And I have to tell you, the Greek text is very difficult to follow here, especially in verse six, but it seems to me that James is painting two unflattering portraits of the tongue. And I put those in your worship bulletin if you'd like to follow along with this. I won't have these on the screen, but one of them I see in verse 6 and the other in verses 7 and 8. In verse 6, James says that the tongue is a hellish fire that consumes our life. A hellish fire that consumes our life. In order to see how this works, we, we have to unpack and make sense out of the various phrases of this verse. So let's do that. He says, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. In other words, all of the unrighteousness that is in the world All of the sins of the world, of every kind, let your imagination run, whatever you can think of that is sin and evil in the world, can be represented in the fire, which is the human tongue. And this fire, the human tongue that can express every kind of evil that exists in the world, James says, is set. It literally means it takes its seat among the members of our body, and what does it do there? It stains or literally it defiles the whole body. That means that when we sin with our tongues, it's not just our tongue that has sinned against God and likely against others, but we ourselves, our whole body, our whole person becomes defiled. The tongue is a flame that sets the whole body on fire. And then James goes a step further. He says that this sets on fire the entire course of life. It's a very difficult phrase to translate. Depending on what version you have this morning, you might have it translated in different ways, but I think the ESV does a really good job here. The idea is simply that sins with the tongue are not isolated instances, but they establish a pattern that characterizes our life. That's why it's hard not to simply tell a single lie. We all know that one lie leads to another lie we have to use to cover up another lie. When the fire of lying begins to consume us, we become liars habitually. Filthy talking and joking becomes a habit so that we get used to using crass language and we become ourselves crass and corrupt. Bitter speech, such as griping and complaining, will eventually produce a bitter person. And we could go on. But James finally warns us here that this fire that is our tongue has an ultimate source. Notice he says, it is set on fire by hell, literally by Gehenna. Now, what is Gehenna? It's actually a Hebrew word that's used in the Greek text, mostly in the Gospels. It's the word that Jesus often used when he referred to hell. Some of your translations might actually use the word Gehenna in the translation. Most of them just say hell or hellfire. Jesus is using a Hebrew word, Gehenna. Gehenna is Hebrew for simply the valley of Hinnom, which is on the western side of Jerusalem, it was a place that the wicked kings of Judah used for idol worship before Babylon destroyed the city and the temple and carried the people away captive. One of, one of the worst forms of idolatry was actually practiced in the valley of, uh, of Hinnom, in Gehenna. And, and that was child sacrifice. So when the idol worship was ended, the western side of Jerusalem was condemned and became basically Jerusalem's garbage dump, and there was always a constant fire burning there. In fact, when the potter's field was purchased to bury Judas after he had hanged himself, this is where the land came from that that was purchased to bury him, ironically. Gehenna was an odious, disgusting, dark, despicable place that was associated with evil and with the devil himself. So for James to say that the tongue is a fire that's fueled by Gehenna, and I I, I hear James, even though he was not a believer when Jesus was teaching, he probably heard his brother teach, his brother Jesus teach on hell again and again using the word Gehenna, and James uses it here. He says that the tongue is a fire that is fueled by the flames of Gehenna. That's to say that it is fueled by Satan, the arch enemy of God, and all the sin and the world that Satan represents, and the place of torment where unrepentant sinners will end up because of their sin, including the sins of the tongue. Now, let's put all of that together. James is saying in this verse that our tongue is inherently evil, that we easily sin with our tongue, because in our fallenness, our tongue is infected with the evil that Satan brought into the world. And as such, there is not one sin that thrives in all of the unrighteous world that cannot be represented with our tongue. And when we sin with our tongue, we unleash this hellish unrighteous fire that will consume us first by removing us out of fellowship with God and second, if we do not confess and repent by consuming the very course of our lives, turning us into a kind of person that the sins of our tongue express. You know what? This is exactly what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 15. The parallel is uncanny. And maybe, again, James is remembering what Jesus, his brother, taught. But in James, I'm sorry, in Matthew 15, the Pharisees get on to Jesus' disciples, you remember. Because they did not ceremonially wash their hands before they ate. Now, now, they weren't concerned about the fact that, you know, your mom always said, wash your hands before dinner. Uh, you know, people always remind us that, even to this day, you know, because we don't want to bring dirt to the table. That that's not what was on their mind. Uh, there was the ceremonial washing that they had to do before they ate. That's what the Pharisees taught. If you're going to be a holy person, you had to go through this sort of cleansing of one hand and the other. I think there was a prayer you said or some kind of blessing you said so that you could keep your heart pure before God. It was a, it was a ritual you would go through before you ate. And, 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 and the Pharisees start criticizing Jesus as disciples because they didn't go through this ritual. You, you're, you're, you're just, your master is a holy man and you, he hasn't taught you this. And Jesus on this occasion calls the Pharisees out for their hypocrisy. He points out a sin he knew they were already committing with their words. And then he gathered all the other people around him and he said, get this straight. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, eating with unwashed hands. But what comes out of his mouth, this defiles a person. Or as James 3.6 says, this stains the whole body. Now, the disciples want to know exactly what Jesus means when he says this. So later on in Matthew 15, Jesus says, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth and passes into the stomach is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. In other words, the, the, the sin is in there. The temptation to sin is in there. But once we use the tongue to give it expression, we have sinned against God. We are defiled. We need, we need to confess and repent. For out of the heart, he says, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, a false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not, does not defile anyone. This is exactly what James is talking about. When you speak sinful words, these represent the sin in the heart. You don't have to commit actual murder to express murderous thoughts with your tongue when you rail against a person out of lack of compassion. You don't have to commit sexual immorality to say sexually explicit immoral things and become corrupt before God. But when you use your tongue for evil, it's a fire that sets your life ablaze with sin that threatens to consume you if you do not confess and forsake it. But if we can return to our text for a few more minutes, there is yet another unflattering portrait of the tongue that James paints in this text. Namely, he says that our tongue is a poisonous reptile that no human can tame a poisonous reptile that no human can tame. Look what he says here in verses seven and eight. He says, every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature. I did not time this text, by the way, with music camp. I just want you to know, okay? Just Providence. Of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Now, some of you might want to take issue with me that I use the word reptile here, but I'll tell you what's in my brain as I, as I read and, and study this text. I think that James is depicting a poisonous beast. I say a reptile because he's comparing the tongue with all the creatures of the animal kingdom. In fact, if you, if you take this list of animal kingdom uh, names and, and, and lay it alongside of God's creation account in Genesis 1, it's really uncanny, the, the parallels. Uh, James knows his, his Old Testament, he's Hebrew text. So he's saying that the tongue is the worst beast of all. This beast is restless in the sense that it is unpredictable. It's untamable. Just when you think it's under control, it can lash out. Doesn't that describe some of us sometimes? And not only that, this beast is full of deadly poison. I can't read these words without being reminded of the serpent in the garden. Or of Paul's words in Romans 3 that Rob read for us this morning, the poison of asps is under their lips. And it seems to me that James is not merely saying that the tongue is a restless evil, but that he is saying is a restless evil creature. A highly venomous, restless creature. It can poison us by infecting our lives with sin. It can poison others with its biting, venomous words. And it will not rest. It yearns to express the sin that is in the heart. It so badly wants to answer back to authority, disrespecting the authority that God has set over us because in our heart, we are not recognizing that God has a design for that authority, even if that authority is not believing. Our tongue so badly wants to complain and grumble, betraying a heart that is ungrateful for what God has provided. Our tongue is restless to criticize a brother or sister in Christ rather than to pray for that fellow believer or encourage him or her. Our tongue, this this restless, venomous creature, delights to pass along the rumors that we have heard about another brother or sister in Christ. Maybe not because we want that person to suffer, but because we are self-righteous and we feel justified when somebody else has fallen into a worse sin than we have committed. Our tongue wants to lash out or speak in frustration from a heart of impatience because the world is not bending the way we want it to go or not bending fast enough for our liking. Our tongue cannot resist bragging about our accomplishments or something good about ourselves or our families or our past, revealing a heart that is self-centered and prideful. And if any of us are saying, wow, that that hurts. I I, I know when I've done that. What James is saying is, look, it's coming from inside. It's it's a hellish fire that begins in our heart and, and comes through our tongue. And these restless, poisonous sins of the tongue and others I've already mentioned this morning could cause us to become discouraged. I mean, how can we control something that James says nobody has ever been able to tame? But I want you to look. Closely, one more time at verse 8. James actually says, Notice this, but no human being can tame the tongue. James writes this very awkwardly Greek sentence where he literally says, No one among humans can tame the tongue. He doesn't have to say that. He's already said in verse 7 every kind of animal has been tamed by literally humankind. That's not just in your translation. That's what it says in the Greek text. So he could have simply said, but no one can tame the tongue. And we would have totally understood. He's talking about humankind taming animals. But James goes out of his way grammatically to say, no one among humans can tame the tongue. Why does he put it that way? I think it's because James is hinting at something here. It's true that no human being can tame the tongue, but God can tame the tongue. The Holy Spirit can. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ can. I'll go back to my earlier question. Who has control of your tongue? Are you allowing the Spirit to tame the beast? At the end of Galatians 5, where Paul explains the work of the Holy Spirit, he says that without the Spirit, or if we are living out our life in the flesh, we are open to sins... Such as he names, among others, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. Those are sins from Gehenna that give the tongue its poison, that make us restless to sin with the tongue. Think of the kinds of words that are on our tongue if in our heart we are harboring enmity and strife and jealousy and anger and rivalries and dissensions and divisions and envy. But then, Paul goes on to say, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If we say we know the Lord, if we are indeed united with Him, then then these Christ-like fruits are being produced in us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. What kind of words come from a tongue when we are loving and joyful and at peace and patient and kind and good and faithful and gentle and controlled? So the real battle here is is not in, in here, in the mouth. The real battle starts here in the heart. Have we truly given the Lord our heart? Are we dealing with the hellish sins of the heart to which the tongue merely gives expression? And if so, if the Lord has our heart, does he also have our tongue? That's what James suggests here. We'll take one more time to consider what James says about the tongue next Lord's Day, but we should close realizing that James is not trying to beat us down with this text. But the, the deeper I go and study it, the more I'm like, wow. I, I, did not realize, I, had, I did not realize everything he was saying in this text before trying to prepare it. it. It's just stunning to me how completely full his picture is of the human condition, even in Christ. But none of what James says here should leave us without hope. He already told us, for instance, toward the beginning of chapter 1, that when we ask God for wisdom, God is a gracious, free, and abundant giver. God wants us to succeed in Christ. God is for us. But James is rather challenging us that if we truly believe the Lord, if we are following Him in righteousness, if our heart is truly changed, then that will be reflected in what comes out of our mouths that's what james says and that's what it means to live up to our faith father thank